We are finishing our Christmas series today because uh, though we have another service between now and Christmas, this is our last Sunday service before Christmas. And so uh, we're concluding uh, what's been uh, a very deep study into one verse, Isaiah 9-6, that he will be called, uh, make sure we read it in proper order that I don't screw this up for us all, that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And it's been uh, a, an amazing series. We're going to conclude it today, and I think it's going uh, to be a powerful message, and not because of me. Uh, I like to think of myself as I'm your researcher. I go in all week, I find something that's meaningful, and I share it with you, and the, the passage today is very good. Uh, so I have a few questions for you. First one is this. Uh, anyone working on their New Year's resolution yet? No, just anyone think of one? Some of us? Okay. If not, I, I love to serve you. I want to make it easy. I printed a few for you, and I'm going to read them off. These are some of the good ones I found online. Uh, stop doom scrolling on social media. If you're not familiar with doom scrolling, this is when you have scrolled and you've seen all your friends' updates and you keep going and going and going and you are deep, deep into the share of the share of the share of your friend uh, and uh, there it goes the whole afternoon. So no more doom scrolling on social media. That's a good one. Uh, here's one. I think this one is inspired by the pandemic. Uh, live my best life and only buy pants with no buttons or zippers. Um, here, here's a good one. This, this, this is a challenging one. Cultivate the confidence of Kanye West without cultivating the absolute tone deafness of Kanye West. Um, this is a good one for me if I, if I feel like it. Uh, stock up on fresh fruits and vegetables and eat them before they turn into green mystery goop at the back of the fridge. Finally, remember to make overnight oats the night before, knowing full well I'm not going to eat them in the morning. Sometimes you got to crawl before you walk, you know? And sometimes you have to do that rock out of the chair before you can even crawl on the ground. Uh, and actually, this one, this one I'm serious about. Uh, this, is, this is mine to you. Uh, walk away from overwhelming situations. Honestly, if, if we could bring that into our life as a thing we do more often that when overloaded, when the kids won't stop screaming, when the fight's getting too heated to say, I will come back, I'm not walking away from this, I will, I will come back, I promise, but I need to go cool down, we would be very different people. I, I'll tell you, there are two very different Sams, the Sam under strife and stress and the one under peace and tranquility, and they're very different. Uh, one Sam is... Uh, he can see truth over the conflict, and he has wisdom about the matter. And he can steer a room from a fight into reconciliation. He's humble, and he can admit his faults, and he can bring an end to hostilities. The other version of me is an idiot. Uh, he spends no time thinking before he says a thing. Uh, he's, he's often wrapping up a sentence trying to figure out how he's going to do it. Uh, he is unbelievably confident. I got to give him credit for that. Angry me, no self-doubt, fully knowing uh, my righteous judgment. Uh, and though he hates the tension, he seems completely hell-bent on extending it indefinitely. Peace is more than a feeling of, of, of peacefulness. It's, it's this base point that if you're in it, 
the rest of life benefits from that peace. That if we, have, if we can step away and bring peace back into that room, the, the whole room will change. It won't just be a way that I feel. It'll be the way that I act, the way that comes back to me as, I'm, as I can cool down a place. Peace is a source of wellness for all of life. And so this child born to us, this individual, what is promised in Isaiah 9? We've looked at this. This has been a grand Christmas passage coming down to four things that our Messiah King will be known for. And the final title we're going to read today, but because it's the last Sunday, we're going to read the entire thing. Starting in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation. It increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Uh, for as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, and the, the bar that crosses the, across their shoulder, and the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and uh, peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that day on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We finish with that last title, Prince of Peace. It's worth it um, to understand these words and what they mean, these two simple words, prince and peace. We'll start with peace, though. Shalom is the word that's used here, and it's used a lot. It's actually still to this day a common Hebrew greeting that they would say to each other in place of a hello. And above all the things that shalom means, it's nuanced. It's, it's like this living word that is personified in what it does. It means most uh, acutely means wholeness. It means completeness. And it's a storytelling word, sort of like a, a wholeness and completeness of a thing will produce all of its other meanings. When something is whole and complete, it has one of its other, of its three meanings, tranquility, emotional well-being. And when we, are, when we are whole and complete, when an individual is whole, when a relationship is made whole, when a family is made whole, when a community is made whole, it produces emotional sense of well-being, this tranquility. Wholeness also produces an end to hostility. When things are made whole and complete, when the, when the fight is, when, the, when, when justice is done and, the, and the, the injustice, the imbalance is taken away and balance is restored and harmony is restored in a relationship, it ends hostility. We, we think of this word peace like this often, world peace. When, when hostilities end, when wars end at an armistice, at the laying down of arms, that wholeness would produce such a thing. It also has deep connotations of prosperity, of flourishing. When the earth is made whole because the rain has come and the sun has come, the seeds have come, when all of the things have come together and it is whole, it flourishes and it produces life. 
And what we see is that peace is more than a feeling. It's something that's established. Jeremiah 6, 14, the Lord says, they dress the wounds of my people like it is not serious. Shalom, shalom, they say, but there is no shalom. Have peace, be, be whole, be complete. But there is an evil among them that makes it to where you cannot settle this matter. You can't just gloss over things. Maybe it happened in our families or friendships, but you, I'm sure every one of us has a memory of a time that something happened between us and someone else, and it was never made whole and complete again. There was never a moment of debriefing. There was never a moment we could discuss it and have it laid out and come to a new understanding. And I'll tell you, as much as you try to lay this blanket of peace over that matter, it's never whole, is it? It's like we're trying to make it peaceful by just simply not having a fight. And so this comes, he's, the Lord wants to deal with Israel's problems. He wants to come and defeat the thing that is their enemy, the sin and darkness that's among them, so we can establish peace. And he says, these leaders you have, these false prophets, they say, peace, peace, but there is no peace. You can't just say it and make it so. Peace is not a state of mind. It is an absolute reality, a reality that's established when one does something. There's this story in the day of David where there's a rebel who, who rises up against King David and he's trying to get cities to join him in this rebellion to create a side kingdom. And so the, the proper government of Israel under its proper general, its proper army is pursuing this man and they come against a city he's in and uh, General Ahab begins to build his siege works and they're going to destroy the city and end the rebellion. And it says there's a wise woman in the city and she goes to Ahab and she says, why would you destroy us? We have long been relied on as a place of wisdom. We're a mother among the nation. Let us hand him over to you. And so they kill him and they throw his head over the wall and it ends the, the war and it says that she brought shalom to the city because there is a problem, there is an acute issue and her wisdom was to deal with it. And until he's dealt with that city, would just continue to watch siege works built against it. Crisis must be dealt with for peace to preside. And this Messiah has promised to us that he will not just say peace, he will make peace. Because when he binds our wounds, he will be understanding what it is. He'll be healing the crisis, the issues. He'll be settling the matters so they can be peace. And a hallmark of his kingdom, what it will be known for, the final name on our tongue of the four that we would call him is a kingdom of peace, a prince of peace. We are instructed in scripture not to have a peace of mind in hard times, simply some sort of mental discipline or as a, as a trance, something we trick ourselves into. The clear direction of the New Testament is this, that we put our faith in Christ that though we might slip and fall, we have the kind of confidence as if it's like we're rock climbing. And if we fall, at least we know we are tethered into the eternal rock. And when the rope hits tight, we will still be tethered in. I think of this with, with Stephen in the book of Acts. He's going to be killed. And yet it's noted that, was, that his face was just filled with peaceful countenance. And if you're not familiar with being killed by stoning, and people would throw rocks at you until you were dead. It's a horrifically difficult way to die. And yet he faces this with such peace, not because he avoided it, 
not because he's simply just not thinking about it, putting it out of his mind, and, and so that he can have some sort of false peace right now. He has this utter peace because just before this happened, he saw like a window of heaven open up, and he saw into eternity. He saw Christ's throne. He knew where he was headed, and he was not afraid to cross over this painful crucible into eternity. And it's a beautiful picture of what we have, that, that we don't have peace simply because we're tricking ourselves into it. But as we remind ourselves that Christ really did subdue our enemies, he really did defeat this thing for us, he really has distributed, and peace becomes not a state of mind, it becomes a reality that we are disciplined to remember. Hope is a reality in the promise. Because, you know, when, when you face strife, when you face stress, you really, you get two choices, don't we? We can avoid it, or we can confront it. Avoidance and confrontation, that's pretty much what you get. You can ignore the leaky roof at the house that's dripping and dripping and dripping on the hardwood floors, or you can confront it, either by paying someone to go up on the roof, because that is the worst job in the world, uh, or you go up there, because you are courageous, I'm telling you, God could callously just ignore sin, put it out of his mind. But this is not what he chooses to do. He chooses to confront it through his son, to bring shalom, to bring wholeness, to bring completeness, and then everything that that produces, the tranquility, the peace, the, the, the call to the laying down of arms. Peace is not declared, it's established Troubles are dealt with, and this new relationship begins. It's interesting, this word of peace. It's sar, which sounds like czar. Actually, I was going to Google whether that was the case, and it's just not been the week. So someone else figured that out if the Hebrew word sar is related to czar. But it means governor, administrator, uh, and authority. And this can be misleading because in English, we think of prince meaning the son of the king. When I hear prince, I see a little blonde-headed kid. Fair-faced, silver spoon in his mouth, never did a hard day of works in life. That's what I think of when I, when I and you know, the re, that's interesting. The reason that we think that has to do with English history. Because the word prince actually does mean someone who rules in the place uh, under the authority and tutelage of a king. But what the English kings did is that they had all these princes all over the place. And then they just slowly killed one and then put their son on the throne. And then killed one and put another son on the throne until it was just their family and it was a way of consolidating power. So English history leads to our English misunderstanding of that word. In fact, uh, the Prince of Wales was an actual Welshman that they killed, and then the, whoever inherits the throne of the UK, they are put on that position. So King Charles, who was Prince Charles just a few months ago, he was the Prince of Wales. And at some point on BBC, they're going to broadcast William being made Prince of Wales, though he's not Welsh. And it's a history of someone in his great, great lineage committed murder and put someone else on the throne. So we have this understanding that the prince means the son of the king, and that's not what it means, even in English, and certainly not in Hebrew, that the word sar means something of authority. In the same way that at one point, the prince of Wales ruled under the king's tutelage. He was there to distribute the, the coins minted in the face of the king, to distribute his authority and his power into that area. So that is what princes are, given power and given authority to rule and to bring something in from an overking. And this is really interesting that he is not called the king of peace, but the prince of peace. It actually is unique and different. 
He's the king of the whole earth, the highest civil authority. The government fully rests on his shoulders. But yet he seems to still be this Messiah submitted to an even higher authority in heaven where he will administer and distribute peace, not from the earth, but peace from heaven. That the peace he's distributing comes from the king in heaven and he is this prince of peace. He becomes the pathway of peace for all humanity that heaven's wholeness and completeness now can be channeled into this creation through the one that will administrate it as the Tsar, as the priest. He will bring shalom. He brings in a heavenly recreating peace, the kind of peace that once popped through heaven and created this world and whatever it was done doing a task, it said, and it was good, that he will bring that back. His dominion is shalom. He will rule over it and administrate over it like a wise one who serves under a king and distribute it to everyone. And he alone holds these keys of true existential peace. That sense that we want to have that things are going to be okay, that my life means something, that can only come from heaven and it only comes through the Son. And his kingdom will be a kingdom of peace. His throne, a throne of peace. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, means city of peace. It's said that in his city of New Jerusalem, the tree of life will be replanted there. And it will bear its fruit every season. And it says its leaves will be used for the healing of the nations. You see, he establishes his kingdom on earth. And the first thing he does is he makes peace between us and God. And as that wholeness and completeness comes in, it fills the earth until there is suddenly something shocking, peace between us and us. That global peace comes from the Savior whose kingdom fills the earth. He holds completeness and wholeness in his hands. And this wholeness and peace, it is for you. It's for your families. It's for your relationships. And it's for your world you live in. And when his wholeness and peace is firmly established in you, when we're reminded of it constantly, we remember that it is not a state of mind, but a very real thing. It becomes who we are. And like a cool down of leaving a room, we can come back into our own lives exuding peace exuding wholeness and healing. Not through a feeling, but through a status, a real life status of how we live and strife. That Christ did not come to just say peace, but to do something, to attack the problem and to fix it. And you are called to spread it everywhere. That everywhere you go, that, that peace, that shalom, that wholeness would go with you. That people would feel like something came from somewhere else when you entered the room. Deep within. Your words will end hostilities. It'll reconcile people back to each other. It'll bring relationships to wholeness again. And as it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. If we wonder, how do we spread a gospel in a world that is not interested in it. We can spread the peace they are interested in. 
because those who spread the peace, people will say they are sons of God. His work is summarized in peace. It's the last thing that's said of him in this passage. All the ways we'd speak of him, that he will be a wonderful counselor. He'll be a mighty God. He'll be an everlasting father. He will be wonderful. He will provide counsel to us that will make us whole and complete, make our homes whole and complete. He is mighty God. He can bring in something from far away, something that no one else could do. Do what only God could do, and yet do it in our place. He'll be an everlasting father, never leaving or forsaking, always counseling and being with us, and he will do this as he distributes his peace in this world, his wholeness, his shalom. So I guess the question is, is how do we speak of him? Did, did it pan out this way? We are reading a passage that took place many, many years before he was born. And now we can read passages that were written afterward, and we live many, many years after he was born. What kind of things could we say about this king? How do those who know him speak of him? Did he defeat strife? Did he really do it? There's the, a video of praise, and even though I know the rappy little bass line in the background is dated, it is one of the most profound declarations of someone saying just what kind of king we have. I want us to watch that real quick. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. 
Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. I mean, just hear how we praise him. Not like someone who just made us feel better, but everything that tries to stop him in what he does, everything he overcame, the overwhelming, unmitigated failure of the kingdom of darkness to stop him. And all the things we say, you can't defeat sin, you can't defeat death, you can't fix my family, you can't stop my addiction, you can't, you can't heal my body. It would take someone with incredible gall and strength to defeat darkness to bring this kind of peace. And that is the king that we serve. How can you say no to such a complete savior? Such a shalom savior, that wholeness, completeness, there's nothing missing in his salvific work. His work is whole, it's complete. And it makes us whole, and it makes us complete. And we read this passage as a promise of someone that people, their hearts burned inside of him until he arrived. And now we know his name. Now we know how to find him. We know how to, how to learn from him, how to follow him, and how to take up our cross and join him, that we could be made whole and complete as his work is whole and complete. I want to pray for us today. Like kids that fear a graveyard, we fear enemies that are already dead. Children shouldn't have to be afraid of graveyards because everything in it is dead and the dead remains dead. Lord, I pray that as you have defeated our enemies, that we would no longer walk away afraid and walk around afraid. Lord, I pray that we would have peace that comes with us, tranquility to know that your victory was solid and complete and whole, that we are anchored into solid promises, that just because this life is hard and doesn't go the way that we thought, it never means that we aren't living in the eternal reign of a prince of peace. You reign over our lives, God. You hold it in your hands, and though it may not go the way we want, and the way we thought we wanted, it leads us to life and to peace and to hope. That even those that went down to the grave in strife and martyrdom, even they saw such superior promises that if we really, really got it, we would have a steady heartbeat 
and tranquil emotions in the face of even death. Lord, let us settle back into you and to rest in you like John did, resting against you and reclining, knowing that if it, even doesn't, if it doesn't even go the way we thought it would, that you still hold the reins and the path of peace in our life. And you are the one that brings wholeness and completeness, peace, tranquility. You bring shalom. Lord, help us to grow into in our trust, to remind ourselves more frequently of how good you are. That we would be a home to peace. That a kingdom of peace would live inside of us. That we would bring peace into places and into rooms, into relationships, into conversations. And let us grow today as we give you every corner of our life, that every part of us would be administrated by the Prince of Peace. Before we move on, if you're in this room and you've, you haven't given your life to the Lord and you haven't made that commitment, said that you're going to be his, that's how this all begins. It begins with giving up control. It begins with leaving a life you're in charge of to making it one he is in charge of and receiving an incredible gift that because he bore sin and death and died and rose again, you, he took on your sin and death that you could rise and live. If you want to make that transaction, you haven't today, I want to give you an opportunity. You can just raise your hand and put it back down, but I want to give you this moment right now. If you're in this room and that's something I'm not going to call you out, I'll just be praying from up here. What we're going to do is we're all going to repeat this together. We're going to join our new uh, brothers and sisters that are crossing over into something great. So everybody repeat after me, particularly those of you that raised your hand. Jesus, I give you my life today. I receive your gift of salvation. And I pray for a whole new relationship between you and I. And I see you as being in charge of my life. Thank you. Amen.